I have three different passages for you to look at tonight. I'll tell you where they are so you can kind of have your finger in them or if you have a little bookmark or something. 1 Kings 2, Genesis 2, and 1 Timothy 2. 1 Kings 2, Genesis 2, and 1 Timothy 2. Since Crosspoint started nine years ago, something like that, we're coming up on nine years, I believe. It's nine years this summer. He's given us a burden as a church for men, for having eye contact with men. It was early on in the life of the church that we began to recognize that there was sort of a profile. We gave it a name. This is before Gary Carroll joined, uh, but we gave it the name so we could say this before you. Is Gary here tonight? Before Gary joined, Greenville Gary, okay? So we weren't picking on Gary. The name was already there. Greenville Gary, the profile would be that a woman would come in with a man. Greenville Gary would have a look on his face, his hands in his pocket, no Bible, and a look on his face like, when's this going to be over? Meanwhile, his wife oftentimes would have a Bible that had one of those kind of doily-like Bible protectors on it with handles, you know, that looked like she crocheted it at home but it was tattered and worn and frayed. She'd have seven or eight bookmarks sticking out of it, you know, markers. You could tell she knew that Bible like the back of her hand, and she was just excited as could possibly be to be with God's people, to be gathering on corporate worship. And then there's the man that has his hands in his pockets looking like, where are we eating and when are we eating lunch? And we kind of considered that that was not a good design. Thankful for women that love the Lord and thankful for women that for a long time and probably in a lot of scenarios stood in the gap for men that didn't have a pursuit of Christ. But we realized early on that we needed to have eye contact with men if we were to be about being a healthy people, a healthy church. And that burden, that early burden, connected uh, has sort of been a I would say has been a theme throughout the life of our church. Uh, so much so that at one point, as we were moving through the book of John, we sort of parked John for, I don't know how many different Sundays it was, probably 10 or 12 Sundays for a series of messages that we called the Dib Series. Um, men, if you have not listened to the Dib Series, it's worth listening to, and it's worth going back to even if you have listened to it. It's not the only statement out there on what it means to be a godly man, but it's one that we took a very thorough look at, what it means to lead your family biblically, lead them well, lead them in the way that would bring glory to the Lord. It's worth going back to listening to if you haven't. But I thought I would just summarize that series of sermons with one passage tonight. And it's funny because this one passage I didn't even consider during the series, but it just sort of contained nicely sort of the point. First Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> when David's time to die drew near, this would be King David, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God 
walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. The thing I enjoyed about this passage right off the bat is it uses warrior language. David was a warrior. If you know David's story, you know that he was a warrior. Solomon, not so much. He wasn't a fighter. He was a lover, apparently. So it's interesting that David would use warrior language with Solomon. It's a great example that whatever your um, personality, whatever your, some people may say, man, that's just not what I'm like. Um, or that's not what I'm all about. He uses language of manhood that's connected to warrior language, even for a guy that wasn't a warrior. The thing that he says first, or I would say most importantly, he says, show thyself a man. The first thing that I want you to consider about real biblical manhood, godly manhood, is it has a show. It's not, not it is a show, but it has a show. Think about it in poker language or card playing language. It has a tell. There's a visual. You see something. When he's saying to Solomon, show yourself a man, he's not saying just kind of be manly. But he's saying this needs to have some sort of application, needs to have some sort of evidence. And it goes back to the first thing that he said is that men are to be strong. This word there, it doesn't have to do with muscular strength. This word there in context is connected more to a picture of faithfulness, to steadiness, and to bravery. Strength as being faithful, as being steady, as being brave. And then in three ways, he sort of develops that strength. Manly men keep the charge of our Lord, one. Manly men walk in his ways, two. And then third, manly men keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. I'm going to tell you right now, man, pursuing the Lord involves pursuing it well and being a biblical man like David charged Solomon with being involves bravery in the application of these sort of things, strength in the application of these sort of things, faithfulness in the application of these sort of things, of keeping the charge of the Lord, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, bravery in obedience. Now, there's something pretty cool about those sort of pursuits is that he makes the promise to Solomon there or he encourages him with the likelihood that you'll experience blessings if you pursue those sort of things. It sounds to me a lot like Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, Psalm number 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates both day and night. I'm summarizing an excerpt. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which bears its fruit in season. Whatever he does, he will prosper. It's not a health and wealth message here. It's a reality that the man who pursues the Lord, that pursues keeping his charge, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes and commandments, his rules and his testimonies, and showing himself a man, there are blessings for that man. Generally, this man will prosper in what he does. Generally, in the big picture, this man will prosper in what he does. 
They're blessings for men who show themselves manly by walking with and obeying their God. And on the flip side, what's the flip side of blessings? Does anybody know? One word. Curses. They're curses for those who don't. Curses and difficulty and heartache for those who don't. In some ways, every man in this room has been blessed with stewardship over your manhood. I thank my God almost weekly <laughs> that I'm not a woman. Now, <laughs> usually for reasons that aren't so deep and important, but usually it's just because of the highs and lows of womanhood <laughs> and just hormones and emotions and all the things that everything is just comes to them at once which I enjoy seeing <laughs> not experiencing but when you really think about it that we've been given stewardship through his sovereign plan to make you a lad or a young man or a man it sort of should make you grateful and it should make you, too, think about where we've been in Hebrews. I don't know if you've connected any of these thoughts tonight to there yet, but I want to connect you there in these next few minutes. The topic that we've been engaging a lot in Hebrews has been the word dominion, which is not quite warrior language, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. That men were made to walk in dominion. Now, let me give you two reasons why we're meeting tonight, and then I'm going to develop this dominion thing a little bit more. First of all, we want to be intentional about connecting manliness, biblical manliness, to dominion. That's the first thing, and I'm going to develop that in a minute. The second thing, this was sort of a consensus among the elders as we talked and visited together and considered this time that we could have together, is Lord has blessed us in the last couple of years with our small groups. Those of you who are in small groups, you know that small groups have been a tremendous blessing. They have. We've pined for small uh, groups of people in our body to walk with each other in consistent ways. We, we've wanted that. Now, we are a little bit concerned. I wouldn't say fearful, but I would say concerned that as that has grown more developed and more mature, that it might have been at the expense of family shepherding. There has been a little bit of a concern that possibly the thing that we wanted to be most important, family shepherding has in some ways taken a backseat to small group identity and small group shepherding. Now, I don't think that's true across the board. None of us think that's true across the board, but there seem to be some signs and possible indicators that families are working less, are working, not working quite as hard at meeting together often as a family and reading together and praying together and talking about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And then in some ways that has sort of taken a backseat to we really want to be in a small group. So that's kind of the second reason that we wanted to stop down tonight, uh, talk with our men tonight and next week, talk with our men and sort of regain eye contact and reconnect to what it means to be a biblical man and what it means to shepherd your family or to be prepared to shepherd your family. We have some young men here. We have single men. Lots of opportunities here for you to be equipped in between tonight and next week. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 2. 
I want to show you, I want to develop a couple of things regarding dominion. And the first thing is from Genesis chapter 2. It's sort of what happens when you don't show yourself a man? When you don't walk in dominion and when you don't shepherd well. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is likely a familiar story, but it may not be familiar where I'm going with it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. Amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In some ways, he showed him what he didn't have first with every critter imaginable. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, notice who he went after. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Is anybody wondering where the man is? Anybody? I am. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. He's checked out. He, he doesn't come into play for a little bit here. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, notice the woman determining all these things. So where's the man? It's the woman. This is a family we're talking about here. They've been united. Okay, at this point, we're talking about a family. The woman is determining all these things. She took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing while this whole thing is transpiring, because he's apparently with her, but he's not with her. I mean, is, would you say he's with her? Would you say he's really paying attention and really protecting her and shepherding her? So she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, notice, who's, look who he's looking for. 
He doesn't come looking for Eve. He come looking for Adam. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The old Adam didn't walk so well. Who led in this scenario? Eve led. Okay, I want you guys to see that, men. Young men, lads. I want you to see that Eve led here. Now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to make you this promise, men, those who have families or those who will have families. I make you a promise that catastrophe awaits you when you let your wives lead your families. I want that to sink in for a minute while you turn into 1 Timothy chapter 2. Catastrophe awaits you when you let your wives lead your families. When you let your wives determine your schedules, your pursuits, your plans as a family, catastrophe awaits you. Now, I want to tell you, too, that I love women, and there's one particular that I love a lot. That's my wife. I have tremendous respect for her. She has tremendous wisdom. I don't hardly see things straight without her, but we're in a mess if she ends up being the leader. Now, man, I want to tell you something. I know what women can do to you if you try and step out and lead your family. I know what some women can do because we've seen it happen before. We've had, I don't know how many examples in the life of our church where a man tries to step out and lead his family and this wife that has pined for him to lead now is not willing to follow and she bails. So I realize as some of you are hearing this, you might be going, man, I kind of see where you're going with this thing, but you don't know my woman. We're not talking about our women tonight. We're talking about us. And tonight, one thing I want you guys to get clear in my little portion is that you are made to lead. It's part of your manhood. It's part of showing yourself as the man. When you let your wives rule the roost, I think a couple things happen. It makes a monster of your wife. It does. You've seen it. I've seen it, not just spectating. I've seen it at times in our marriage. So I'm not picking on anybody else. It makes a monster of your wife, and it makes a weasel of you. Now, some of you that might be hearing something like this for the first time, you might be thinking, man, this guy is really talking about some crazy stuff. And, and you know, like the stuff that's been in the news with the pastor talking about slapping or, um, what's he, whipping homosexual kids or if they show, if they're effeminate, beating them up or something. That, that's not what this is. You guys need to understand what this is. I'm not going freestyle with some sort of... Some sort of recommendation. These are biblical truths that we're talking about the way the family is supposed to be led. We're talking about men leading like God designed a family to be led. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says this. It says, I desire then that in every place 
Men should pray. Brad preached on this at some time. Um, I don't know how long it's been, but lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, this sort of searchability, this sort of openness and receptiveness in God, God's direction and in others' direction. Lifting holy hands. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now listen to what Paul says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. Now, he was stupid, but he wasn't deceived. All right, let's be very clear about what he was. He was a knucklehead, and he wasn't paying attention. But it was Eve who was deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The thing that Paul connects to there is the reality that when man fell, it was right off the bat was a broken design for the family. When man fell, man had his hands in his pockets thinking about when are we eating lunch? I want you to see that. Some of you haven't heard any of, these, any of these teachings before. You might be thinking, man, this is some crazy stuff. I've never heard that. I want us to have an opportunity to develop that. And I will tell you this. The Shepherding, the Dib series, develops this thoroughly. And we're all still married. Those of us who went through it, we're all still married and our wives love us. <laughs> so no, you're not in for some sort of um, damaging... Um, traumatic experience those things can be fleshed out elsewhere but what i do want you to see tonight is that when man fell for the first time it was because the family had it backwards man had his hands in his pockets and eve was deceived eve was leading and that's not the way the family is supposed to operate just a few questions for you to think about what else in this scenario that i developed over there in genesis chapter chapter 2 and 3 what else did we see from Adam. What else did he do other than not lead? Okay, he blamed. All right, who did he blame? He blamed God. He blamed Eve. All right. Well, who can we blame for not shepherding well? Ourselves? Okay. That's usually the last person that I find that we blame, but who, who can we blame for not shepherding well? Our dads? Okay, who else? Pastor? Okay, he doesn't do a good job teaching us. Who else? Our wives, yeah, you make it so difficult. It's doing the same thing. The woman that you gave to be with me, it's her fault. She's so bossy. I just couldn't get in a word edgewise, God. And it's your fault too because you gave her to me. It's her fault and it's your fault. Some other things that I thought that would be easy to blame might be your schedule. I'm just so busy. God, I couldn't possibly show myself a man because I'm just too busy. What else? Yeah. Or frolicking or something. I don't know. Yeah. Climbing a tree or something. Swinging from a vine. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Some other things that I, that I think are easy to blame is you can blame your boss. 
And you may never go there. You may never ever say, it's my boss's fault that I don't have time to shepherd my family, but my boss put such a demanding schedule on me that I couldn't possibly have time to, I know, like Willingham, guys like that. They make it real hard for people to do, shepherd their families. You know I'm kidding. Yeah, exactly. Um, one, uh, another one, too, that I think is easy to point the finger at that makes it hard to shepherd, which is one you may not have thought of as your children. Man, I can't possibly shepherd because my kids are like little um, Tasmanian devils, you know, running around, tearing up the, you know. <laughs> I didn't say that. Keith said that. Herd yeah, herd cats with rockers. Um, you know, I, I, we can have a ton of things to blame for not doing our job of showing ourselves a man and leading in our family, um, but none of those are really good explanations. Ultimately, it's something that God has given us stewardship over. It's something that he's given us an opportunity to, to, uh, to do. So, um, now what happens if you show yourself a man and when you shepherd well? Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I told you that we have three. There's one more. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the last one. And I'm going to turn it over to Scott. <clears throat> I'm going to read a passage in chapter 1, and then I'm going to read a few passages in chapter 2 that should be familiar to you. Chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You remember from our time there that that's speaking of Christ. Christ sitting at the Father's right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You remember that illustration where I put my feet up on that, on that little podium there? That's developed more down in chapter 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, He's speaking, this is the world to come and this present world is subjected now to Christ, who's the victor through the cross. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, we know this isn't talking about general mankind now. This is speaking of Christ. He develops it further. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Man, I like the sound of that, but the verse continues. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He put everything in subjection to him, but at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. I hope you remember that development there, this sort of this weird reality that Christ is victor, he's ruling and he's reigning, yet progressively the kingdom is advancing and he's placing things that aren't yet under his feet, under his feet through the advancement of the church, through the church wielding the gospel. The thing I want to connect to here with dads and shepherds and men is this dominion reality, I think is ideally wielded and advanced and led by men, by men showing themselves as men. As you walk well, you're part of placing things under Christ's feet. You're part of this advancement of the kingdom. You as men are part of his rule and his reign as you lead your family, as you lead your wife, as you lead whoever God has given you stewardship over. First, in regards to schedules, your family should not be owned by your schedule or by the family's schedule. 
to have your children in an, any and every activity that they fancy and to consider that good shepherding is to do so is to miss that you could have a kid eventually that's great at handling a variety of activities from robot building to making a fire with two sticks to dunking a basketball backwards. I'm just thinking about what all craziness we could do. To pitch in a perfect game. You know my sport. I'm struggling here with the sports things. <laughs> to pitching a perfect game to scoring a, a soccer goal with a header. See, it's like when you hit it with your head. I mean, we could have kids that could do all those things and yet not love the Lord at all. Now, there is nothing in the world wrong with robots. Did I hear somebody laugh? With, did there? <laughs> Maybe certain robots. Yeah, yeah. There's something wrong with him. There's nothing in the world wrong with building robots or with dunking backwards, but those things must not be primary pursuits in your family. To be owned by those sort of pursuits and owned by those schedules is not to walk in dominion. Walking in dominion means that you have a view that we're part of an advancing kingdom. That's what it means. You have a view that we are an army that's part of an advancing kingdom and that we're about an eternal work of wielding the gospel in lost, dark spots. That might be some relationship that you've been invited into. It might be a, a part of town. It might be a scenario that you've sort of found yourself in. To walk in dominion in regards to your schedule means that you realize that you're wielding the gospel in those dark spots. If you miss that, then I, the byproduct will be that the church just becomes something that you attend along with everything else, and it's going to get squeezed out. It will get squeezed out. If it's just right on par with all these other things, all good things. Duncan's good. Robots, good. But if those things get on par with you wielding the gospel in dark spots, then you're going to lose sight of proper shepherding and you'll migrate from ditch to ditch as you simply just try to avoid the ditches. The thing you try and avoid is the thing you're going to find. And you won't be part of what you're meant for as a man in walking in dominion. That was just having to do with schedule. Next one has to do with money. I don't know that there will ever be a time when, for me, I, I don't know if y'all are made of the same stuff that I'm made of, but there, I feel like there's always an allure for more money. It's not something that, that owns me, but it's something that I'm mindful of. I think you may be disappointed to know that I'm made of the same stuff that you are. Maybe none of you deal with that. But the opportunity to make some money, you know, if it's kind of a season that I can step into and make some more money, man, that, that's kind of a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I come become controlled by that, then I'm not going to be walking in dominion and I'm owned by that thing. My experience with those sort of things that you pursue, with, I'm going to do this so I can make some more money, is that it's almost like a mirage. It's like a mirage in some ways that you pursue it and you get there and it's never as good as I thought it was going to be. 
That's the first reality. And secondly, if I look up and look beyond it, there's another one. (laughs) That's the weird dynamic about things that have to do with money. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having a good job and wanting a good job and making money. But just know the dynamics of it. Is this never going to be as good as you think it's going to be when you get there, once you get there? And once you get there, when you look up, there's yet another mirage out there that's saying, come on, come get me. You'll be even happier. You'll be even more fulfilled if you come do this. So if you know those dynamics, then you don't have to be owned by these, this pursuit of money any more than you're owned by a pursuit of doing everything in your schedule. I was thinking about how money and schedule can play out. It can functionally play out like, um, it's not an official name, but I was kind of thinking of guys that I looked up to when I was a boy as real true men, guys like Clint Eastwood. Can any of you name some others around his time frame? John Wayne, yeah, he's a little older than Clint Eastwood. Who else? Charles Bronson, yes, yes. Charles Bronson was a good one. I'm thinking of, um, who, who played Lone Wolf McQuaid? Chuck Norris, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of ashamed to say that, that I, I like that. But the thing that all those guys have in common, especially Clint Eastwood, I'm thinking kind of a Jeremiah Johnson sort of fathering or husbanding, is they kind of blow in town with the tumbleweeds, and then after they've kind of taken a bath and, you know, kind of hung out with mama for a little bit, then they blow out with the next breeze, with the next set of tumbleweeds. And that doesn't make for good husbanding and good fathering and good relationship. Those guys are the guys that I looked up to as manliness when I was a kid, but more and more time that I've spent in God's word, I've found that that's not manliness at all. But functionally, the way it can play out, if you're pursuing money and you're pursuing just being involved in everything and never saying no to anything and pursuing any whim that any of your children may have, is that it's going to play out like you're rolling in and out like the tumbleweeds and you don't park and you don't engage and you don't spend time with your family. Dominion says, I'll subdue the day today like it really matters and I'll pursue money in its place with a big picture or a a view of the big picture in what really matters. Dominion says, I'll not be enslaved to a standard of living. That's the thing that we're seeing right now, guys. You need to hear this, is being enslaved to a standard of living. Man, and once you get a certain amount of success and you find yourself planted and you have a certain amount of things and stuff around you, is there's this thing that we sometimes see that we experience too that can be enslavement to, I gotta maintain this thing. And you guys need to know that it's okay to get rid of stuff. It's okay to scale back. You might sleep at night. And you might be home to shepherd your family and be there and walk with them in a way that's going to be a whole lot more important to them in the long run, a whole lot more meaningful to them in the long run than maintaining the, the standard. The last thing that I thought I would mention would be affections. Dominion is about the work of taking your family to your greatest affection. Now, it's a problem if it's not your greatest affection. If Christ is not your greatest affection, you can't fake it. But I will say this, for Christ to be your greatest affection, you have to work at it. You do, you just have to work at it. If someone said, man, I want your wife to be your greatest affection, you might think, okay, 
Well, what's involved with that? You would immediately go to, I've got to spend time with her. For her to be my greatest affection, I've got to spend time with her. I've got to sort of rediscover why I fell in love with her and the things that I enjoyed about her. The same would be true about Christ. Is you have to work at it. You spend time with him, you pursue him, you engage him, and you'll find the more time you spend with him, the more you, I believe, I trust, will enjoy him and your heart will reflect it. And he will maybe yet again be your greatest love and be your greatest joy. That's walking in dominion. Last thing I thought would be something that Scott will be developing this next Sunday. I encourage you to listen to this. We'll be taking dominion through walking in proper patterns. The patterns is he laid, that he's laid out for God's people. Um, I think Scott will be developing that this next week. I thought I would end my little section tonight with a little um, story that some of you are familiar with, but it just seems especially appropriate right now. It's not uncommon after we've spent some time like this as men, sometimes we do this, we get together around a campfire or something like that or have a series of weeks that we get together or visit and just kind of enjoy the men of cross point and what i hear from men after those occasions is man i really wish we did this more often i wish we did more of this i wouldn't be surprised if we hear some of that tonight i agree with you this could be something that we could do more of but let me encourage you in this if you wish that we had something like this that we have tonight and next week year round because you feel like it's something that you're getting equipped where you're not finding equipment elsewhere. Let me encourage you in this little story. There was a general that led an army called the Syrian army years ago. This general had leprosy. We don't know that it was like his nose was hanging off. He could have had shingles. You know, any form of skin condition was considered leprosy. Apparently, he had a little Jewish servant girl that told him, said, you need to go back to my homeland and go see Elisha, the prophet, and he'll heal you. So this dude, Naaman, he said, you know, that seems ridiculous. Why would I go and do that? Finally, his servants talked him into it. So Naaman gets his entourage and his convoy and heads all the way back to see Elisha. He comes to the door, knocks on the door. You can imagine the procession as a, a general of Syrian army shows up to little old Elisha's humble cabin i expect knocks on the door and elisha doesn't even come to the door now right off the bat i would expect that that insulted um naaman you'll find out in a moment that it in fact did elisha didn't even come to the door in fact what he did is he sent a servant to go to the door to tell naaman to go wash in the jordan seven times So Naaman is hacked. He's hacked for two reasons. He's hacked because Elisha didn't come to the door and wave his hand over his problem. I want something very specific and surgical because I am, after all, Naaman. (laughs) I want something that is tailor-made for me because I have certain needs, Elisha, and I'll not be happy with something as menial as washing in the Jordan. That's the second thing he's hacked about How many of you have been to the Jordan? Let me see a show of hands. Three. Was it impressive? (laughs) Was it what you were expecting? (laughs) Uh, Listen, I I have never been less impressed. I expected, has anybody ever been to the Savannah? The Savannah River in in Georgia. 
gracious, we need, y'all need to leave. Go, go drive. Get in, get in the van and go somewhere. Okay, all right. The, the Savannah, well, the Mississippi, yeah, what I'm thinking of, I envisioned as being like the Savannah River, this flowing, beautiful, dark, clear, dark but clear at the same time, water. Because that can happen. You know, flowing, meandering through the cypress, you know, will, weeping willows, you know, and, and uh, Spanish moss hanging down to the water, you know. And, and I got there, and it was muddy, <laughs> and it wasn't very wide. You know, in fact, there was one point where I thought, if I got running fast enough, I could almost jump across it. And something else, it was sort of like, like those, those shows where you see on TV where the kids are starving to death, and they have flies all over their face. If I would have stood still... I would have had flies all over me. Like it just, the only place I wouldn't have flies is where I'm opening my eyes. There were, in fact, we went with Kent Jones. Do you even know Kent Jones? Kent got mad at him. Like it was really going to have an impact on him. Like they're going, ooh, he's mad. I better stay away. It was just funny though. But I'm thinking, this is the Jordan? <laughs> I thought this thing was supposed to be beautiful and impressive. And in fact, it was sort of like riding a donkey's colt. It was sort of like a king of kings that washes feet and is a carpenter that's born in Bethlehem and is raised in Nazareth, their version of Quinlan. Seriously? That's what the Jordan was like. So Naaman is like, man, I am not impressed. And we have nicer rivers back in in my homeland that I would much rather wash in. So his servants, he's about to head on out. And his servants said, you know, Naaman, what do you have to lose? So Naaman says, okay. And he goes off and he washes in the Jordan seven times. And what happens? He's cleansed of his leprosy. Now, the long story short, the Jordan River for God's people, for men who are to show themselves a man, man, is not necessarily a man's club, but it's walking with God's people in the Jordan River of corporate gatherings, of simple gatherings on Sunday mornings where you hear the word preached, where you sing together at the top of your lungs with God's people, true things about Jesus, where you gather with God's people to study, where you get together in small group gatherings or you have somebody over to your house and you eat a meal together and you talk about how great Jesus is. That's the Jordan. It's unimpressive and there's flies flying around everywhere. But it's what he's ordained to cleanse you. It's what he's ordained to equip you to be men. So don't leave here tonight or after next week thinking, man, if only I had some more of that, I could truly be a man. Realize ultimately you're being equipped to be a man when we gather every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning. Pay attention to what you're hearing. It's equipping you to walk and show yourself a man. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. I'm thankful that y'all are here. And it's, um, I just want to jump right in and let you know it's, it's not, well, it is God's design that you are not the weaker vessel, just to put it real clearly. By God's design, there is no man in here that is to be the weaker vessel. It doesn't matter if your wife is a more dominant personality, like Ben addressed earlier, or if you are maybe more timid by nature. Um, timidity is not a sign of lacking manliness. Uh, or even if, you, if your job a man demands, a lot, demands a lot of you, um, you are not and we're never meant to be 
the weaker vessel. There's no set of circumstances on earth where God would allow you to come to him and say, God, here's the deal. I, j- I just need to be the weaker vessel for, for a little bit, just for a little bit. God wouldn't say, okay, I understand. He would say, no, I designed it otherwise, and it can play out differently if you trust me in the details. One of my burdens uh, that I would like to address tonight is that if we don't know how to biblically prioritize the expectations that others lay upon us, we will begin to look and act like the weaker vessels. If we can't prioritize expectations, we will look and we will act like weaker vessels when it's God's design that we complement our wives and we help others with our God-given strength. So just real briefly, who are some people that speak expectations into your life? Day-to-day. Boss. Sorry? Wife. Children. Yeah. They got lots of expectations. A surprising amount. Elders. Those guys are a pain in the neck. Extended family. Ooh, that's a nice way of saying in-laws. <laughs> Who else can put expectations on our life? Ourselves? Who else? Kids, coaches. Wow. That hurt anybody? That was a zing. The kids, coaches. Any, any others that come to mind? God? Notice where he was at on the list. Culture. You watch TV, there's expectations. You see an advertisement, there's expectations. I'd like to particularly look at three roles with their expectations that must be prioritized biblically because if we don't biblically prioritize them, we will get lost in the details, we'll get drowned out in the details, we'll get frustrated with the details, and we will ultimately look like a bunch of weaker vessels, which was not God's design. As I explain these roles, I want you to hear this. This is sort of a, a, just a brief outline. If you know what your roles are, as given by God, you can set goals in your life. And if you know what those goals are, you can use your time and your resources to accomplish them. That's not some quippy self-help seminar kind of thing. That, that's biblical movement. God says, I've given you roles, and they're non-negotiable. So you can set goals for those things, and then you can take them to your schedule. You can take them to your budget. And rather than being ruled by the schedule and ruled by the budget and working its way back to where you're in a role that you didn't even know how you got there, we start with what does God say is important to us. And the three I want to address are one is being a Christian man. Two is being a Christian husband. And three is being a Christian father or head of household. So in Genesis 2.15, Christian man, Ben already read it. I'll read verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Who put man in the garden? God. To do what? To work it and to keep it. I want us to consider first that work for a man was God's design before the fall. Now, I'm saying work. I'm not necessarily saying job or vocation because I know that for some of the guys in here, the work is you're, you're at home with the kids a lot of the time. But work itself is not a bad thing, and it's not a product of the fall. Now, how hard the work is is certainly affected by the fall, but this is pre-fall. Work was there in the garden before the fall. And at this point, there's nothing that's getting in the way of man's relationship with God. He's working, and he's keeping the garden, and he's in a great relationship with God. There is no separating sin. By God's design, man was working hard and enjoying him. You don't have to choose between those two. 
You don't have to choose between working hard and enjoying God. And then in verse 18, man gets a helper in the form of a woman to aid him in this process. So here we have work and we have a wife before the fall. Proverbs 18.22 explains it like this. You don't have to turn there. You might write it down in your notes. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, as we're talking about biblical manhood tonight, if you're concerned like, ooh, this sounds a little odd, a little too uh, masculine and maybe a little anti-woman, no. Proverbs 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And if you don't know what biblical manhood is, you will absolutely neglect that good thing and you will not see what a blessing there is there. So from the get-go, our jobs and our wives were never meant to hinder our relationship with God. So Ben's already said it once. Those can't be excuses for your relationship with the Lord. Our jobs and our wives were never meant to hinder our relationship with God. God did not place the man in the garden so that Eden would get in the way of God. God did not take Adam's rib and make a helper so that Eve would be a hindrance to his relationship with God. Ultimately, you need to know that having a job and having a family was never meant to kill you. Having a job and having a family was never meant to kill you. But with work and a helper, man immediately has the need of understanding his God-given roles and prioritizing his expectations because he's in this relationship with God, but with the work, the demands of the garden can begin to creep in. And with a, with a wife, maybe she has some thoughts about the garden and about their relationship, and, and those, those expectations can creep in. So from the get-go, even before the fall, we can see that um, there was a design here by God so we, um, like Adam, are not allowed to use our jobs or our marriages as an excuse for laziness or lack of time when it comes to being a Christian man. Man's real problems come into play when what Ben described earlier, I'll just describe it in a little different way, when the fruit of the garden became more important than working the garden. How did that happen? How did the fruit of the garden become more important than actually working the garden? Yeah, he, he, he said, I'm doing this work, and maybe there was a, a sense of um, entitlement. I don't know. And that the fruit of the garden became more important than the work of the garden. How would that possibly play out for us today? We've already talked about it. Yeah, we can work hard and neglect the household. And how does that play out? Pursuit of more stuff. Yeah, it's, it's when the paycheck begins to become more important. Um, today's equivalent would be when your paycheck becomes more important than actually doing the work in a God-honoring way. Your, your reason for having a job as a Christian man is not just to get paid. Your reason for having a job as a Christian man is to display the character and the worth and the glory of your God above and beyond anything anyone could ever offer you on this earth. Not just about money. Oh, Yeah. 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 They say that the younger man wants the money and the older man wants the power. So there's this progression of sort of a sad development if we, if we lose sight of God and who he is and what he has for us in our work. So for us, is it, um, oh, the fruit of the garden was never meant to trump the God of the garden. 
sin was one of the results of Adam listening to who? Eve. <laughs> so, or Eve. That's what he said. Eve. We just we kind of made eye contact, and you're just like Eve, dude. It was Eve again. Oh uh, yeah, sin was one of the results of Adam listening to Eve, particularly more closely than he listened to God. Now think about how that plays out. Seriously. What do you have to do to make sure you're not listening more closely to your wife than you are God? Ignore her, okay? That's one option. What did you say? Know what God sounds like. I thought you said leave the house. I totally thought you said leave the house. So uh, we have ignore her and we have know what God sounds like. How often do you hear from your wife? I mean, it's not bad to hear from your wife. How often do do y'all talk? Sometimes daily. That's fantastic. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eve may have genuinely and wholeheartedly thought that that fruit would be great for her husband. You ever considered that? She may have genuinely said, husband, looky here, you'd be like God. How wonderful is that? But whose responsibility was it to keep that in balance? It was Adam's responsibility. Um, For us, it's a sin to allow our wives to direct our lives more than God directs our lives, even if our wives love Jesus. Even if she loves Jesus deeply and walks with him, even if she prays more than you, we are to be directed by God first and foremost, and that relationship is of extreme importance. So within the few, uh, first few chapters of the Word, we have laid out for us that God's design is for man to work hard while always putting God first and his wife second. Don't get that out of order. When you hear things that are in order, don't think, oh, well, that's, that's too tidy. No, no, no. There are some things that God gives us that are absolutely essential. That is a good order. You know, work hard, putting God first, your wife second. That's absolutely important in God's design as as the forward movement of his kingdom plays out. As a pattern of creation, man's relationship with God existed before his relationship with his wife. So what we're getting at here is that um, the wife is a blessing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, obtains favor with the Lord. But it would make no sense to step away from God to work on your marriage. I've heard that happen a lot, where someone steps away from God, oh, I need to work on my marriage. I gotta, put, I gotta put all my eggs in one basket. I gotta be completely here. You don't step away from God to work on your marriage. It's his design. If it wasn't his design, his idea, his thought, with his purposes in mind, you could do that. But because it is his design with his purpose, according to his plan in eternity, you can't step away from him to work on your marriage. So the sobering question that I'd like to ask is, what are you doing in your life to foster the ultimately important relationship between you and God? This is difficult. I know what most of y'all's schedules are like. That's why it's important we first know our role so we can set those goals and then go to our schedules. God made plans and then time. So we follow his lead. God made his plans in infinite wisdom before time began, and then he created time for those plans to have a platform to play out in. 
And one day, time will melt back into eternity. So we follow God's leads. we got to make those plans and then go to our schedule. So I would ask, how are you doing that? What are you doing in your life to foster this ultimately important relationship between you and God? Personally, I recently fell under conviction that much of my reading and my studying and my praying was the result of the fact that I was a pastor. Don't all of you expect that of your pastor? Read your Bible, pastor. Pray, pastor. Study, pastor. Now say something good. You would have some expectations of the pastor. Now, what I realized was I had slipped into sort of a season of studying and praying and, and reading is because I was a pastor. And I, and I asked myself, do I feel the urge to go to the Word and spend time with my Lord only because I'm preparing something to teach or preach? It was convicting. Am I going there for any other reason other than to make sure I have something good to say when people are ready to hear it? Bring it down a notch just to your home. Do you go to the Word just so you have something to say to your wife? Or just so you have something to say to your children? Is the only time you read the Word out of a children's Bible at the end of the day with your kids? Do you spend more time in the Bible with cartoon pictures than you do in, in your own? I ask you these things because they're tells. They, they let us see, are, are we showing ourselves a man, as it was said earlier? We should be eager to spend time in the Word and in prayer because we, we, we treasure our fellowship with our God. I should get up and pray and dig into the Word because I love Jesus, because I'm a Christian man. So we have to see that as Christian men, we are called to something in our lives as, as we walk with Him, and we can't be willy-nilly about it because it will trickle down and it will have negative effects on our marriage, negative effects on our parenting, negative effects on our friendships. If we have no desire to go to God that has anything to do with just fellowship with him. I mean, really ask yourselves, when's the last time you spent time with the Lord? Not just saying things, but listening, wanting to hear back, time in prayer, time in meditation, time that was quiet so you could have some thoughts. Some of us are terrified to be left alone with our thoughts. But it is good to have time with the Lord. We should be eager to spend time with him and treasure that fellowship with him. Turn to Proverbs 3. Do y'all generally like trusting other people to take care of important things? No, probably not. For those who are looking up, they're shaking their heads like this. Do any of you even have problems letting your wife drive on a road trip? I hate it. I can't stand it. She's like, I want to drive. I'm like, no, that won't work. And then she gets offended. And I have to remember she's a fragile vessel. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Charles Bridges says that it is nothing less than self-idolatry to conceive that we can carry on even the ordinary matters of the day without his counsel. Consider no circumstances too clear to need his direction. Do you approach every day like that? There is not one circumstance that I am capable 
of moving in without God, even the most simple things. C.S. Lewis talks about how he found it to be a, a, um, a benefit to pray a little bit in between everything. That's how he said it, pray, pray a little bit between everything. No matter, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm going to pray a little bit. Because we can't conceive that there's any part of our lives that we don't need God. Um, no circumstances are too clear already to, to need his direction. By God's design, we as Christian men will need God for everything. So I would ask you, are there any areas of your life where you are guilty of self-idolatry? God, I got this. I got this. Any areas of your life where you're guilty of self-idolatry? Any areas where you feel that need for his counsel is unnecessary? Just put your head down. You'll get through it. It'll be fine. Any areas where need for his counsel is unnecessary? In those areas, the call is to repent and turn Godward. I'm really hoping that right now some of you are feeling conviction in some areas, led by the Spirit, to say, you know what? I'm guilty of self-idolatry in that area. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's as a parent. Maybe it's as a spouse. So what we're seeing here is that it's only when our relationship with God is priority number one, our relationship with God is priority number one, that we can then tend to the next most important relationship, which is our relationship with our wives. That's the next most important relationship. If you're a married man, or if you ever hope to be a married man, you need to know your most important relationship is with God and second is with your wife. Now, if I asked most of you, you would probably say, yeah, it's God and wife, but how does that play out day to day? What does that really look like? How intentional are we being and moving in that? Turn to 1 Peter 3, 7. This verse does so much in the way of explaining this dynamic. Um, it's one verse that really reveals a lot about God's design, how high he holds the marriage relationship, and how important your relationship with him is. First Peter 3.7 says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think that my wife being a weaker vessel is one of my biggest frustrations in life, and it's God's design. I have prayed before. I found myself praying, and then I took it back and said, do over, and I prayed again. But I prayed. I I was like, God, I don't want her to be the weaker vessel. That's more work for me. If I didn't have to explain this thing out completely in 10 different ways so she could understand what I was saying, it would be much simpler. God, right now I think I'm praying that she's no longer the weaker vessel. Make her an equal vessel. Oh, that would be so much easier. We could read each other's minds. We wouldn't have to work through difficulties. She would get it. She, I mean, the way I think is obviously right, and she would just get it. She would understand it. That's not faithfulness. That's not good biblical movement. It can be frustrating that your wife is a weaker vessel. So as you look at this verse, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of God, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What would you say is the goal of the verse? Unhindered prayers. I'd say the goal of the verse is unhindered prayers. Now, hold on. I thought I was talking about my wife and she's weaker and I'm stronger. How is the goal of the verse unhindered prayers? Well, why would it matter for our prayers to be hindered?
That's our relationship with God. Are your prayers hindered? Let me ask this. Would you know if your prayers were hindered? Would it bother you if your prayers were hindered? We've talked about this in looking at the tabernacle, how the priest would say a prayer and there'd be the golden incense going up from the, from the tabernacle. And that's, if you didn't smell that one day, someone would say, what's wrong? Something's out of whack. Where's the priest who lights the incense and offers the prayer? It should be the same when we don't pray. Uh, what's wrong? That hasn't happened. Would you even know if your prayers were hindered? What else happens if our prayers are hindered? Yeah, won't have access to God's wisdom. Yeah, man does not live on bread alone, but God's word. It's huge. I mean, I could ask another way. What are you accomplishing in your prayers? What's happening in your prayers? What is God accomplishing in your prayers? Yeah, where he's working, what he's doing, what else? Yeah, a closeness with God. You won't know if you can trust anybody if you didn't know what their plan was beforehand. So we could say biblical manhood is, is praying regularly and praying with your wife regularly. Uh, let me ask another thing. Um, whose responsibility is it in this verse to live in an understanding way? The husband. Husband, live with your wives in an understanding way. What details do you think make up an understanding way? Patience, gentleness. Humbleness, listening. So far, I haven't heard anything that any of us do naturally. Ben does. He's a saint. He's glowing right now. You might not know that. <laughs> he was also only going to take 30 minutes tonight. Whatever. We'll talk about it later. Whatever. Barely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can talk about the weaker vessel thing right here. Don't go home and be, oh, I figured out the problem. You're weak. Don't do that. That would be a horrible plan. Yeah. Chad says it doesn't work. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, heirs. Yeah.
Yeah, Romans 12 says, outdo one another in showing honor. There should be sort of a friendly, godly competition going on in the house where you're outdoing one another in showing honor. That might play out in small, menial, mundane tasks. Usually that's where it plays out. Yeah, yeah. It's a little different. There's an understanding way about the household. That means it doesn't mean you have to understand everything, but you have to work at it. Uh, feel the weight of this verse. See what this verse is saying. Yeah. It better be good. All right. I've watched that play out in your marriage, just so you know. Be encouraged by that. I've watched you grow in that, and man, it's encouraged me and challenged me. And hearing you say that is an encouragement as well. What'd you say? Yeah, we know. We know. We, no one thinks that. <laughs> We're all in the same boat there. Um, the way to this passage that I want us to see is, is that your relationship with your wife is so important that God will temporarily hinder your communication with him and his communication with you if it's not right. That's what he's saying. Live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. The thing that hinders the prayers in that verse is not living together in an understanding way. That's the, that's the weight that God puts on your relationship with your wife. Now, don't make the mistake of stepping too far in that and saying, well, then my relationship with my wife must be more important than my relationship with God because what's the goal of the verse? Unhindered prayers. So that can't be the case. God keeps it in proper perspective for us so that we can move according uh, to his design, uh, understanding the role that he has given us so that we can set goals and, and, and apply it to all of life. I would ask also that um, this does not place your relationship with your wife in higher priority than God. This makes clear what God expects of you in your relationship with him and as you are a husband. And one question that just jumped in my mind earlier was, are you still cleaving it talks about leaving and cleaving, and that's not just like a momentary, like, oh, I moved out, so that means I'm cleaving, but are you still cleaving to your wife? Is there a, a connectivity there where, where you are desiring to honor her, outdoing one another and showing honor, loving her? Um, First Peter, uh, or Ephesians 5 says, he who loves his wife 
um, is wise. You, no one hates his own flesh. So when you love your wife, you're, you're loving yourself in a sense, and, and it's good. Um, hope that what we're beginning to see is that each of us have many non-negotiable roles that affect each other and relate to each other, which will bring us to the last role, father or heads of household. Um, I say father and or heads of household because if you're married and you don't have kids, you are a family. You're absolutely a family. And when you have children, there's another dynamic within the family that requires you to prioritize the expectations laid upon you. When you have children, there's another dynamic in the family, which means you absolutely have to make sure you understand the role that God wants you to fulfill, and you have to order those expectations as they fall on you. It's been said that if marriage is God's cold chisel for sanctifying us, then children only sharpen the edge. I'll read that again. If marriage is God's cold chisel for sanctifying us, then children only sharpen the edge. Now, the reason that this is listed third is that just as it is foolish to step away from God to try to help your marriage, it is similarly foolish to step away from your role as a husband to try to do what's best for your children. Y'all catch that? It's foolish to step away from God to work on your marriage. It's similarly foolish to step away from your role as a husband to try to fulfill your role as a father. You don't neglect one to try to work on the other. It won't work out well in the end because these are God-given roles and designs. The healthiest thing that a father can do for his children is not to put them before his wife. The healthiest thing that a wife can do is not to put the children before her husband. That's difficult. There are households represented here tonight that have that out of whack. But it's not hopeless. We, we can work through that. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ is mighty to save. We're learning that he's exercising dominion in every area of life. There's no hopelessness here. If you're hearing that and saying, oh, dang, we put the kids first, God's somewhere here, and man, my marriage is a wreck. Know that that's why we're doing this. We want to help you to see what this biblical design is so you can move in it. And when this is over, there's lots of men that you can talk to to help you work through that and pray with you in that pursuit. Listen to this observation from a counselor and pastor. He said, there is a new trend of people in their 50s and 60s who have 25 and 35-year marriages breaking up out of thin air. And what he says is that I have had numerous conversations with people who said, once the children were gone, we didn't have any reason to stay together. That's a new trend in our culture. That once you got the empty nest syndrome, part of that empty nest syndrome now is for like two or three decades, our whole life has revolved around our children. And now I'm looking at a stranger. I'm sitting here looking at my wife as a 50 or 60 year old who I've, I've lived with her for decades. And I'm looking at a stranger because our life was absolutely centered on our children and everything went around our children, revolved around our children. There's no way for you to fulfill that call in Deuteronomy 6. Remember the call in Deuteronomy 6, teaching the words of the Lord diligently to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You cannot do that if you have abandoned your role as a husband in order to do so. You can't do that if you've abandoned your role as a husband in order to do so. Vody Bauckham says, my family is the primary place where my walk with Christ takes on flesh. Otherwise, my walk is likely inauthentic. Is the authenticity of your walk with Christ playing out in your family? By God's design, it's, it's supposed to. 
It's clear from the scripture that God gives men different roles, but we must prioritize each of them with their expectations according to God's plan, putting him first and our wife second and our children third. And then all of our other relationships, friendships, work relationships will find their place, their proper order if those are in right order. So I want to close with prayer. Lord, we come to you now and uh, we pray, Lord, uh, that you would be honored and glorified as we move forward in this life that you have blessed us with as Christian men. I pray that we would not take lightly the responsibilities that we have. I pray that we would not take lightly the call that has been placed on our lives. I pray that we would never be flippant about any of the details in regards to what it means to be a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian father, a Christian friend, a Christian neighbor. As our day is full of details, I pray that we would see that it's full of opportunities to put your glory on display as opposed to being full of opportunities where we might fail. I pray that you would allow, particularly those of us with maybe more Maybe some of us struggle with just negative pessimism. If anyone's struggling with that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of the light of the gospel and the encouragement that our efforts, because of the Spirit and because of the strength of Christ that rests upon us, our efforts aren't futile and worthless and a waste of time. But that in Christ, you are restoring things, things being placed in subjection, I pray that we would be encouraged by that. And for those of us who are prone to negativity or pessimism, that we would be able to curb that with the truth, that we would be able to say, I feel a certain way, but I trust God, and I trust that it is actually different. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be thankful that we are men, that we would not look at the things that you've placed before us and be immediately filled with guilt at at what seems like maybe uh, undeniable... uh, um, failure or uh, certain failure. I, I pray that we would see the, the beauty and the blessing of being made in your image and walking according to your will. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us sobriety when we see what's at stake. If we disregard the details that you've called us to live by, what's at stake is that we could misrepresent you. We could muddy the gospel we could be living with our wives in ways that are not understanding, neglecting to wash them with the word, and people may look at our marriage and misunderstand who our God is. So give us a sobriety about what's at stake, and with that sobriety, we beg you, Lord, to give us understanding. We desperately need to understand your will and your design and your purpose and the way that we move in the daily, menial, mundane tasks of life and relationships and conversations of life and highs and lows of life. Lord, um, help us to rightly feel the burden of that. Help us to rightly feel the weight of that, but help us not to wrongly try to carry that weight on our own. Lord, you tell us to, to think over what you say and you'll give us understanding. You tell us that a man keeps his way pure by guarding it according to your word. So I pray that you would give us a passion for the word. I pray that we would go to the word and not see something overwhelming and and waste of time, but we would see something that is breathed out by you and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we would be equipped and competent in every good work. 
Without it, we are unequipped, we are incompetent, and we lack the training we need to move forward faithfully. Lord, I pray that as men, we would hold each other accountable, that we would take seriously the call to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. As we leave here now and as we have conversations, we have words that are supposed to come out of our mouth that actually give grace to each other. And I pray that we'd be careful about it. I pray that we wouldn't be flipping about it. And I pray that we would speak in a way that is encouraging, true to who our God is, and in step with the Spirit as we try to speak truth into each other's lives. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.